As we hear this first scripture, look at the description in this. As I talk about walking alongside, now here is John reads from the book of James. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray for them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Holy wisdom, holy word. Now, as you hear the gospel lesson this morning, I would invite us, as you are able, to stand for the reading of the gospel. This is a familiar story, and look at the order by which Jesus heals this man. Let's stand together as you are able. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around there, many gathered around that there was no room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. I need to admit to you that this second phrase um, has been a struggle for me. Last week we talked, as I said, about the whole culture of welcoming and made the point that Welcoming is not the assignment of one person. It's not the assignment of those in red ribbons. It's not the assignment of the ushers. It really is a culture that we need to establish as a church to recognize any who come in and welcome them with open arms, embrace them, and give them and offer them potentially what they are seeking, which means we have to ask the question. But this second piece The language is what kind of took my breath away. And I've talked to some of you at length about some of that. The statement that says, we gather all people, heal and transform them. And then in parentheses, in grace. So I kept thinking about what, what, how can, how can I preach on this? Is there something that, that kind of brings it home as far as my understanding of that? And I kept, I, kept, I kept remembering these two young men, Kobe Dilling and Dewey Miller.
Kobe Dilling and Dewey Miller. Now, we're talking 20 years ago next month that this took place. And I was coaching at Woodenville High School. And at that time, Woodenville High School was in a very elite school when it came to track and field and cross country. It was also one of the largest programs in the state. We had, on that year in 1992, 225 athletes on this track team, men and women together. 225, simply because the culture of that school felt as though track and field was potentially the foundation for every other sport. I remember hearing about Kobe Dilling. We were looking forward to having him come onto the track team because Kobe had broken almost every state record in middle school. I remember all nine of us coaches standing there waiting for him to appear. Now, we kind of already met him in some ways, but you always kind of watch to see how they're going to approach their first day. Kobe was a very humble young man, but confident. He didn't strut on that first day, as some do, but he walked in his whole five-foot-eight frame as a freshman with great confidence and literally came to us, each one of the coaches, and introduced himself to each one of us and said, it's a privilege to be here. At almost the same time, we saw this young man coming down the ramp in Woodenville. The school kind of sits up here, and then there's a secondary area, and then down below that is the track that then goes down the hill to the road and some of the parking lots. And, and I watched this young man kind of trip his way down the ramp toward the track, and none of us had really ever seen him before. He was about six foot two, blonde hair, kind of, you know, the, the horn rim kind of glasses and some freckles, and Obviously, his feet were way, way too big for his body. And finally, he got down, and he introduced himself and said, My name is Dewey Miller, and it's great to be here. I've just arrived at, at Woodenville High School, and we've come from Kansas, and, and I have no idea what I'm doing here, but I just wanted to try out for track. You know, you just know when somebody doesn't have it. Dewey did not have it. And so here were these two young men, and it was, it was hard not to compare them. But, but one of the things about Woodenville Track is that we had a no-cut policy. And so everyone who came was welcome. And the other thing that we had in place at that time at, at, at the high school was, and particularly in the track team, was that team really means team. That the whole team was there to mentor each other, to be in relationship with each other, to support each other and encourage each other, those who were elite, and we had some phenomenally elite athletes on this team. We had two coaches who had had Olympic experience. We had four cross-country runners who were also on the track team, all of whom were seniors, all four heading for MIT. I mean, that gives you some semblance. Others who were going full scholarship to D1 schools. It was truly an incredible bunch. But there was that culture there. I remember Dewey coming to me and saying, Coach, I don't know, I don't know which event to try. And so we, we began to work with him to try all the events. Well, the first one he chose was the pole vault. And, and my coaching was in motivation, visualization, pole vault, triple, high, tri triple jump, long jump, and, and, and the hurdles. I have never been so terrified in my life as when Dewey took a hold of that pole. And Lord knows he tried to break it as much as he could, but he didn't do it. And he, he didn't get seriously injured, but, you know, let's just say never 
held the pole again. And then he tried the high jump and couldn't do that. And, and he thought, you know, with this six foot two, probably 145 pound frame, he was going to go try the shot put and the discus and the javelin. I wouldn't give him a javelin. So then he tried the, the 110 high hurdles, and after the first two collapsed and he got a bloody knee, he thought that wasn't for him either. And then he tried triple jump and long jump, and again, those big feet just wouldn't do it for him. And I remember the day where he came to me, and he said, Coach, I, I think I'm done. There's nothing I can do. And I had this little sparkle in my eye and said, there's one event that you haven't tried yet. And it requires some stamina and a little bit of coordination, but I think you could do this, and it's the 300 hurdles. And by the way, he tried the distances, but he'd just, he'd just walk off the track about halfway through. 300 hurdles, it's, it's an event that takes about, you know, three-quarters of the track, and, and the hurdles are much lower than the, than the 110 high hurdles, and, boy, you could see the spark in him. And so he tried it, and he looked like, you know... The only term I can come to terms with is he kind of looked like a, an injured duck going over the hurdles. But, but Lord knows he decided this was it. And because of the policy that we had there, he, he decided this was, this was his event. And, and so we worked on the 300 hurdles. Now, the other thing I need to share about Woodenville Track is with 225 athletes, it can be a little intimidating for other teams. And we, we made it so. Because one of the things that we did is, you know, we would gather all, and particularly when we were at home meets, there was this little space down at the gym before you walked down to the track and gather all 225, and I got to do the motivational speech every time before the meets. And so they'd gather around me, and I'd give them the speech, we'd put the hands in, and, you know, Falcons, and then, and then the captain would lead them in a clap. Every one of these athletes would begin to clap. And then we would form one line all clapping in unison, working their way down the track and would literally surround the track in that, in that clap. Absolutely taking absolute ownership on that track as one, as the team. Then as, you know, a quarter of a mile around this track, here's this team, and at the signal of the captain, they clap three times, yell Falcons and all come together with the coaches at the, at, the, at the middle of the field, kind of claim the field again, yell Falcons one more time, and off we go to the different disciplines. You need to know that. Um, again, it was a team that really understood that it was a team. Now, about two-thirds into the season, we found out Dewey's story. He came to the coaches' meeting one day, and he said, I need you to know that I'm, I'm, I'm only going to be here until the end of the season, and we're going to move again. He said, my father is trying to kill us. We found out that was true. That they would move and live in a place for three to four months and then move to the next place and move to the next place. He had suffered an incredible amount of abuse as a young man until his wife and Dewey finally left and, and kind of went on the run. And it, it just a tragic, terrible, gut-wrenching story. But I want to remind you, again, the triad culture of priorities created by the coaches of this team. The first was accepting. That we accepted you no matter who you were. And the culture of the team was that we would try and mentor every one of these athletes into becoming better at what they, what they did. The second then was we were absolutely goal-oriented. 
Every athlete set personal records and goals for themselves. And it was up to the team, not just the coaches. It was up to the team to get them to those personal records and goals. If we failed at that, we failed as a team. If we succeeded at that, we succeeded as a team. Third was we were absolutely united. Nothing was allowed to tear us apart. Nothing. And that's how we approached that season. And Dewey set his personal goal. Now, I have to tell you that in, in the 300 hurdles, a phenomenal time is in, in the mid-30s. I mean, absolute kind of Olympic caliber time is in the mid-30s seconds. A great time in, in, in this state would be 40 or 41. Uh, an adequate time would be 43, 44 seconds in the 300 hurdles. Dewey set his personal record at 50. Coming to the last meet, he hadn't even broken 55. So we came to the last race of the year. And it was Kobe Dilling, the stud of the track team, who saw Dewey getting ready for this race. I was going through visualizations with him, doing some motivational stuff with him. And Kobe went every, just every single discipline, every single one. And whoever wasn't competing at that moment, Kobe called them to come. And this team rallied. And what they did was the most phenomenal thing I have ever seen in athletics, maybe outside. I'll deal with the movie in just a second. But, but, but what they did is they formed a line on the inside of the track, on the infield, from the blocks, the starting blocks, all the way around the two curves and all the way to the finish line. And they stood there in absolute silence as Dewey prepared for this race. Coaches are not allowed to coach during a race. Absolutely forbidden. We step back. And watch this team last meet of the season. And there they were, absolutely silent. The gun goes off, and Dewey goes and kind of plods his way to that first hurdle, begins to go over the hurdle and hits it with his knee. He didn't go down. And the team began then, as he ran again, to clap in unison of his footfalls to help him get in rhythm. And you know what? He got in rhythm. He got in rhythm. And it was though suddenly it all clicked for him, and he sailed over that, ne that next hurdle. And what we taught them visually was when you come around to that turn, you pretend as though there's a large, huge rubber band propelling you around that turn. We called it the CZ, the critical zone. And there was this group of sprinters who began to chant, C, Z, C, Z. And you could see Dewey's face brighten. And it was just incredible to watch as he glided over the next hurdle and then the next. And it was in that critical zone that he passed three other runners. First time ever. And he got around that zone and, and in rhythm as they were clapping, hit that next hurdle. And then the next one, he couldn't make up the time with the first place runner. He came in second. And I was right there by the timer's tower. 49.92. I will never forget that number. 49.92. And he looked at me and I said, Dewey, 49.92. And he fell to the track. And suddenly, as everybody heard that, they surrounded him. And just like the movie Rudy, picked him up and put him on their shoulders and carried him. The other teams thought we were absolutely nuts. The guy took second. 
Now, why do I tell you that story? I share Dewey's story because I think it fits. We heal and transform them in grace. Dewey walked in off the street, became a part of a significant community that could have been really intimidating. And oh, by the way, friends, have you looked at yourselves lately? You can be really intimidating. I'm new. I can tell you that. But he came off the street and he became a part of this community. He got involved quickly by seeking and searching new things. Third, he allowed himself to be coached. And finally, when he was ready, he shared his story with some that he trusted, and then the community responded. Now, again, not everybody knew his story. Everybody knew Dewey. And they responded because they saw a need and formed relationships that I think to this day have changed this young man's life. What worries me about the statement is the fact that somehow we don't include God in that statement. God is missing. We welcome, gather all people. We heal and transform them in grace. But I'm willing to bet, friends, that every single one of us find ourselves somewhere, somewhere on that healing and transformational continuum. That there's not one of us in this room that in some way doesn't need healing. And not one of us who with some more coaching and some more relationships and some more study could get better about the transformation piece. But somewhere in this statement, we need to place God. Somewhere in this statement, we need to understand that we don't do this alone. And I understand the third statement kind of infers that as passionate disciples. But friends... We're not the only ones who heal and transform. I think about Dave Tinney. I remember we were in Santa Monica the day he went down on the bike. I remember getting that call. And I remember the way that you surrounded him and his family. Talk about healing and transformation. I remember hearing about Rhody and the fact that he was feeling drained in his call. And what you did for him was you surrounded him again and helped him understand that pastoral ministry may not be the only place where he could be and helped him discover the Congo. I look at Shannon holding Isaac this morning and how you have surrounded this couple new to you with prayer and support Surprise with a baby shower. I think of you and so many in this congregation who have struggled or lost loved ones, and yet there you were. There is a part of you that's in your DNA that seeks to surround. What I am looking for is it to include every single person that walks through that door. And how do we as a church let them know that like Kobe and Dewey, that we are here for you, whatever the need may be. There's so much more, and I'll share with some of these things 
a little bit later, but suffice it to say that as we look at this James scripture that John read, look at the scripture and what it describes as a community that shares everything with each other, surrounds each other in those times of needs and shares the joys with each other. And even sometimes we place those who need to on our shoulders and rejoice with them in these times of rejoicing. But here's the rub. I've been in ministry now for 20 years, and I have yet to see a church be able to do this. But I think you can. The piece that we miss is the first piece that Jesus dealt with in the paralytic. And it is also the last piece that John read from the James Scripture. It's what makes a church truly a church is not just everything that I've just described. What makes church really a church is when we trust each other enough to share even our inner struggles, those places where we need those interior band-aids or those sins that we all commit. And I want to remind you that sin is not some kind of baseball bat or huge thing that we have to deal with. Sin is anything where we miss the mark. Believe me, I miss the mark all the time. And I have a community with whom I go and I confess those kinds of things with them. And we struggle together on those. It's nothing huge. It's nothing major. And it's nothing you need to worry about. But we all need that. Those places with whom we can struggle. Are you that kind of place? And what are the processes, those kinds of things we can do to deepen those relationships with each other? Where those places where we're wounded or those places where we struggle... We can share with each other so that we can carry each other. Are we that kind of place? Let me close with this thought. One of the most significant gifts that I have ever received was the baton that broke both the 4 by 400 and the 4 by 100 relays in 1995. And it was Kobe, Kobe, who handed that to me. And we both wept. I mean, when you're rubbing out muscles for athletes, it's pretty intimate stuff. And Kobe and I became very, very close. And it was all four of them, the four athletes that that ran the 4 by 4 and the 4 by one Kobe was on both of those, who presented this. I had that with me for 20 years until last June. Last June, what we did in the transition from Auburn to Aldersgate was I put a table on the chancel that had a number of different things, a a new Bible and an old Bible and a stole and all kinds of things. And the final thing on that table on the chancel at Auburn First was that purple baton with this note attached. I wrote to her, carry this firmly, don't drop it. The race continues and now it is your turn to run it. When the time comes to pass it on, you will know, but pass it with confidence knowing that the hand that receives it will carry it as you have. Carry it well, my sister. 
And believe me, my friends, I think that can be said for us. Maybe we do heal and transform. Maybe we do carry each other. Maybe we do, in fact, seek to find those opportunities to pass that healing and transformational baton to others whose time it is to both receive it, carry it, and pass it. Is any one of you in trouble? They should pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? Call upon the leaders of the church to pray over them and anoint them in the name of the Lord. Therefore, confess your struggles with each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Maybe that's what you meant. May it be so.